Please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 56. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch the night of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is God's word. We come this morning to perhaps my favorite section of the book of Mark. Although, in full disclosure, if you ask me any given week what my favorite section of the book of Mark is, it will probably be the one that I am studying at the time. I have just so enjoyed digging into this passage. I pray that the Lord will use it for our good this morning. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we quiet our hearts before you today because our desire is to hear your voice as you speak to us in the book of Mark, in this scene from chapter 6 where Jesus walks on the water. We pray that you would help us to understand it, that you would help us to grow in knowledge and in wisdom, and ultimately, Lord, that you would deepen our joy in the fact that he has come, that he has come to us in the midst of our struggle to deliver us to safety by giving his own life for us. We pray all of these things this morning in his name. Amen. Well, one of the things that I remember very clearly from my childhood, something that is seared into my brain as a core memory, is a voice that I heard on the radio in my dad's work truck. It's the voice of Paul Harvey. Right away, there's a line that's been drawn in this room. Some of you can hear his voice right now, can't you? You can hear him saying, and now you know the rest of the story. Uh, There's another group of you in this room who are utterly bewildered uh, by the fact that uh, we all know this voice so well. For those of you who never listened to Paul Harvey, he hosted a show on the radio that ran for almost a half a century. His voice is known to many, many people. The show that he hosted uh, was basically, uh, the idea of it was that he told the backstory 
behind people who were famous, influential, or otherwise well-known. But the way that he would do it is that he would always wait until the very end to reveal the name of the person whose story that he was telling. So, the whole time that you're listening, he's telling this story, and you are trying to figure out who it is that he's talking about. As he gives you a little bit more information, a little bit more and a little bit more, pieces start to fall into place, and maybe you're able to put it together and figure out who it is that he's describing. But most of the time, it wasn't until the last moment that everything clicked. In one episode of his show, he told the story of two brothers about how they had both dropped out of high school, one because he had suffered an injury that led to poor health that made academics a real struggle for him. The other brother had just always struggled with academics and couldn't really keep up. They both dropped out of high school. And so everyone in their lives, including their parents and all their friends, assumed that they would never really succeed in life, that they would never really amount to anything at all. But of course, the fact that Paul Harvey is telling their story is a clue that maybe they did amount to something. After dropping out of high school, they moved from job to job, taking whatever they could get, until they finally decided to go into business together. And working together, those two high school dropouts accomplished one of the greatest achievements in the history of mankind. By the time their names were revealed at the end of the segment, listeners were desperate to know who these two brothers were. Maybe some of you have already figured out who it is. Most of the rest of us would wait till the end when Paul Harvey would reveal that it was Wilbur and Orville, uh, Orville Wright who changed the world when they designed and built and then flew the first airplane. Their story is interesting no matter how you tell it, but Paul Harvey kept people sitting in the driveway with the car running so that they could hear the end of the story when everything would finally make sense. I've thought a lot about Paul Harvey during our study of Mark's gospel. If we can imagine what it would be like to read this book for the very first time, not knowing anything about Jesus, about his life, about the things he did, the experience, I think, would be a little bit like listening to that radio show, gradually getting a better sense for who it is that Mark is telling you about, with pieces of information falling into place and the identity of Jesus slowly coming into focus. And with each miraculous sign, with each teaching with authority, with each new compelling detail in the story, we would be more and more and more eager to find out who this Jesus really is. That's Mark's goal. The thread that ties the whole book together are these two questions that Mark is aiming to answer. Who is Jesus? And what did he do? And this passage here in chapter 6, where Jesus walks across the stormy sea of Galilee, is an important part of the story where a huge piece of the puzzle falls into place. If you remember, Jesus has just fed a crowd of thousands and thousands of people in a passage that we looked at just before the missions conference. Jesus and the disciples had gone looking for some peace and quiet, a place to rest. They're exhausted after all the things that they've been doing. But when they go looking for a place to rest, a great multitude of people, thousands and thousands of them, come and find Jesus and the disciples. They crowd around. They want to be as close to Jesus as they can. In the same situation, you or I might be frustrated 
irritated with these people. Jesus and the disciples are tired, the text tells us. They just want to break, and these people will not leave them alone. We might be irritated by that, not Jesus. He looks at this crowd, and He has compassion on them, and then He miraculously provides food for them all. It's a miracle that He'll duplicate later in chapter 8. He'll feed another crowd of thousands of people, and in that situation, Jesus looks at the crowd, and He says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me for three days, and they've had nothing to eat. He's not irritated, not frustrated with these people. In chapter 8, when he feeds the crowd of thousands there, he's worried about them because they haven't had food in three days. And so naturally, we tend to assume that that's kind of what's happening back here in chapter 6 when he feeds this crowd, that he's addressing their hunger. But that's not what Mark tells us. He still has compassion. That part is the same. But his compassion for the crowd here in chapter 6 is motivated by something else. It says that when Jesus saw the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. A shepherd, of course, guides and protects and provides for the sheep that are in his flock, and that's important because sheep are not the most skilled survivors in the animal kingdom. It's a mystery to me how they made it this far. A white, fluffy sheep that goes wandering off into the wilderness by itself is pretty easy picking for pretty much any predator. They're vulnerable. That's how Jesus sees these people that have crowded around him. Sheep with no shepherd, vulnerable, exposed. It's language that is used elsewhere in Scripture. We're going to see this a lot this morning, language that Mark and Jesus are drawing on from the Old Testament. In Numbers 27, Moses prays that God would provide leadership for the people of Israel who will care for them, who will guide them and instruct them. And he says, this is the reason for his prayer, that that God would raise up faithful leaders. He says, so that the congregation of the Lord will not be as sheep without a shepherd. It's a hopeful prayer. Moses is asking that God would provide leadership for his people to take care of them. Later, When the phrase is used again in the book of Ezekiel, eight centuries after Moses' prayer, it describes the utter failure of the people who were given the responsibility of leadership. In this scene, God is the one speaking. He's speaking about the leaders of His people, saying that they have left the people like sheep who are scattered and lost because they have no shepherd. And then God says, I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks for his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. It's a promise that though God's people are like sheep that have been abandoned, abused, and exploited by those who ought to have cared well for them, he himself will become their good shepherd. He will seek them out. He will deliver them from danger, and he will ultimately bring them home. It is a promise, and it is the hope of God's people, and it is the thing that Jesus is thinking about when he looks at this crowd of thousands and thousands of people who have gathered around him. This is his heart for them.
And that, de- that detail is necessary for us if we're going to understand what happens next. After miraculously feeding the crowd, he tells the disciples to get in a boat to sail across to the other side of the lake while he stays behind to dismiss the crowd and send these people home with full bellies. His authority is evident in this scene. He says to get in the boat and go, and Mark conveys a sense of urgency in the situation by saying, immediately Jesus made them go. It's the first clue that something significant is about to take place. Jesus is doing something. He has a purpose for sending the disciples ahead of him in the boat, even if they don't know what it is yet. Then, after dismissing the crowd, Jesus goes up on a nearby mountain to pray, and that's the second clue that something significant is about to take place. Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus prayed for, only that he withdrew to pray, and that's something that Mark only mentions Jesus doing three times in this book, all of them at crucial moments in Jesus' ministry. The first is at the very beginning of His ministry, and the third is in Gethsemane, the night before He was crucified. So, the importance of the moment is evident to us, not the disciples yet. They'll only see this in hindsight. But right now, it looks to them like this is just a routine trip across the lake, a journey that many of them have made so many times, more times than they could possibly count, that they don't even think about sailing across the other side. But despite all of their years of experience sailing on these waters, they are caught in an unexpected windstorm. What ought to have been a journey of at most just a few hours now seems like it will never end. Mark tells us that they were making headway painfully, but I don't think that word really gets across to us how badly things were going for them. The word that Mark uses for painfully here is one that shows up in first century literature all over the place, but it's usually to describe two things torture, and the difficulty of childbirth. It's going not so great for the disciples. The disi- they are utterly spent from rowing hard against the wind. Their hands are blistered. Their bones ache. And they are mentally worn down because when they look for land, they're desperately, desperately seeking it, hoping to catch a glimpse of, of land on the horizon, but they see nothing. They never see it. And even though we don't know what was said by the disciples who were in the boat that night, we can guess with some degree of confidence, because there's another story that's provided for us by Mark about the last time that they were caught in a storm on this same sea. In that scene, they thought that they were going to die. And Jesus, who was with them in that storm, is asleep in the boat, and they're irritated with him. And they ask him, don't you care that we're about to drown? They're incredulous. They simply couldn't believe that Jesus was so relaxed while they were suffering in the way that they were. So, in this storm, here in chapter 6, I think it's safe for us to guess that they were grumbling again, since it was Jesus' idea for them to be out on the lake in the first place. He sent them into this mess. But we know it is because He intends to use this moment for their good. It's the way that God often works. He ordains the wind. And he sends his people into its path so that when they are defeated by it, they will look for the one with strength to overcome it. Paul had this kind of experience with something that he described as a thorn in his flesh, an affliction 
that he says God used to teach him something important. It was for their good that Jesus sent the disciples out on the water that night, even if it required a painful, terrifying struggle. They are exactly where he wants them to be. And it is something we do well to remember when we find ourselves rowing against the wind. In moments when our strength fails, we appreciate Jesus' strength more than we possibly could have before. That's what the disciples are about to find out. Mark says that at the fourth watch of the night, something unexpected happened. The fourth watch of the night is between 3 and 6 a.m., The disciples have been rowing for hours and hours and hours, fighting and fighting, but there's still no land in sight. But when they strain their eyes to look for it, they see something else. Jesus came to them, Mark says, verse 48, walking on the sea. It's one of the most scrutinized miracles in Jesus' whole ministry, probably because it's one of the easiest to explain away. Beginning around the time of the Enlightenment, lots of people began to write books about Jesus' miracles and to theorize specifically about what they thought really happened here in this scene. Many thought the disciples were so tired that they were seeing things, perhaps that they were closer to land than they realized that they were and that Jesus was really just walking on the shore. Others wrote that they, they thought that Jesus must have been floating on a log out in the water. He drifted up to them. People struggled to accept what the text plainly says that Jesus was walking on the sea. Maybe the most famous example of this is Thomas Jefferson, who went so far as to create his own edited version of the gospel accounts, retaining all the moral and ethical teachings of Jesus by snipping them out of a real Bible and then pasting them into a new book that he called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. But he left Jesus' miracles, including the claim that he walked on water, behind. He saw those accounts as the last vestige of an unscientific time that are unnecessary in a world that is understood best through reason and research. Some of us in this room may have the same doubt, if we're honest about it. We live downstream from those first Enlightenment thinkers who said, if I don't see it with my own eyes, then I must treat things with suspicion. And if I cannot reliably replicate a result using the scientific method, then it is doubly suspect. We know, of course, that if we set out to test the story from Mark 6 here with some experiments, if we found the very most buoyant person that we could find and and we put them on the water, we know, we know what would be the result. We don't have to run that experiment. We know that no one can do what Jesus is described doing in this passage, because human beings cannot walk on water. But every Christian agrees with that. It is impossible for people to do what is described here. But even though Jesus has flesh and blood like we do, even though He is a human being just like us, He is also different, something wholly other than what we are. He is able, in a way that we are not, to rewrite the laws of physics somehow, commanding molecules of water to behave in a way that defies our understanding. He does things 
that cannot be explained by the methods that we have or the reason that we employ. Ironically, before Enlightenment thinkers were saying that the miracles in the Bible were, were rubbish because they could not be explained by science, the great thinkers who developed the methods of scientific observation that the Enlightenment thinkers used did so because they understood that the universe operates according to consistent principles, an idea that they had because the Bible teaches that God is consistent and He created everything and is sovereign over everything, and therefore the universe is a comprehensible place. The reason that Jesus' miracles were miraculous is because they reveal that He is the one who is able to suspend these otherwise constant laws of nature and physics that He Himself wrote What this passage helps us to see more clearly is that Jesus is the sovereign ruler of the universe, ultimately that He is the Lord, that the promise of God to be the shepherd of His people, to come to them, to find them, to deliver them to safety that we read about from the book of Ezekiel, that promise of God to come to find His people and to be their shepherd is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is God wrapped in flesh. And because that is true, He is not constrained by the things that constrain us. His power and His authority are incomprehensibly vast, so He is able to do what would otherwise be impossible. And that, when the disciples see it firsthand, is frightening to them as it certainly would have been to any of us if we had been in the boat that night. Mark tells us in verse 50, they all saw him and were terrified. They cannot make sense of this bewildering thing that is in front of them. They don't understand what's happening. They see this thing, they can't deny it, they don't understand it, and they're frightened of it. But the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. Mark wants us to be thinking of specific moments in the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfills them to help us understand what the disciples would eventually understand. First, throughout the Old Testament, it is only God who subdues and walks on water. Only God does this. In the book of Job, Job comes to God and questions him. He asks for an explanation for his suffering. If you're familiar with the book of Job, you know that Job suffered a lot. He comes to God and says, why? What is happening? Why would you let this happen to me? And God answers Job with a flood of his own questions. He asks Job if, there, if, if Job was there when the foundations of the earth were laid. He asks Job who it was who set limits for the ocean. The questions that God asks Job remind him that God is beyond the reach, not just of his understanding, but also his control. God does what God does in accordance with His nature and character, and neither Job nor anyone else is invited to suggest otherwise. God is in a league that is all His own. And one of the ways that He accentuates that point is in Job 38, verse 16, when He asks, Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? For ancient Israel, there was perhaps no more powerful statement about God's strength than that. Because for them, the sea represented a place of chaos, disorder, danger, death, and darkness. 
So the fact that God claims and then executes dominion over the sea is emblematic of his authority over everything. It is Yahweh. It is Job's God who he questioned, according to verse 9, who stretched out the heavens and trampled on the waves of the sea. Only God does this. Here in Mark 6, though, it is Jesus who is trampling on the waves. It is Jesus who commands the obedience of the deep. One scholar says that in John's gospel, Jesus declares his identity. Here in Mark's gospel, he displays it. He shows the disciples that he is the one who treads upon the waters, who spoke to Job in his affliction, and who now comes to them in their own. With each amazing display, the disciples are drawn closer to him. Pieces of the puzzle are falling into place, but they still don't know the rest of the story. That he not only rules over the sea, but spoke it into existence. That he is more than a, a prophet or a wonder worker or a man who's simply been imbued with God's power. That fact becomes a little bit clearer to them as the passage continues, and we read this strange detail that Jesus meant to pass by them at the end of verse 48. What in the world are we to make of that? If that phrase wasn't there, this would be a very different story. Jesus sees them struggling, and then he goes to help, like a lifeguard who sees someone thrashing around in the pool. They dive in to save them. But a story about a lifeguard who sees someone thrashing around in a pool and then just passes by them, it's a different story. What are we supposed to do with this detail that Jesus meant to pass by them? Again, the Old Testament helps us understand not only this strange moment, but also how it reveals Jesus' identity. The same phrase occurs at several important moments throughout the Old Testament. One is in Exodus 33, when Moses asks if he can see God's glory. Up to this moment, Moses has talked with God in a burning bush. He has followed a, a pillar of cloud and a, a column of fire in the wilderness. He has seen God's presence make a mountain tremble, but he wants to see God face to face. And so he asks if he can. God answers him with a warning that Moses would be utterly annihilated by the holiness and glory of his presence if he were to do what Moses has asked. But then he says, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. So God shields Moses in a crevice in the rocks, passing by and then giving him a glimpse of his glory. A similar thing happens in the book of 1 Kings when God passes by the prophet Elijah his coming is preceded by a wind, we read in 1 Kings, that tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks, just as there is a strong wind that precedes Jesus' coming here in Mark chapter 6. And then when the presence of God arrives and then passes by Elijah, he, he covers his face because he simply cannot endure it. And then in Job 9, which we've already mentioned this morning is one of the places that describes God walking on water, Job 
also describes a moment when God's glory passed by. The phrase, he meant to pass by them, here in Mark 6, is, is strange. It's, it's out of place. It's bizarre if we don't hear the echoes of the Old Testament in it. Some people read that phrase, he meant to pass by them, and they think that that means that Jesus wanted to walk by and then keep going, but for some reason, he, he was interrupted by the disciples, and he, they saw him, they cried out, and he's got to change his plan. He doesn't get to pass by like he wanted to. Like his stroll across the waters was cut short, and he had to change his course. But I think that Jesus did exactly what he meant to do. He made his glory pass by them, and he gave them a glimpse, just a glimpse of his heavenly nature. And just as God's presence was bewildering and overwhelming to Moses and Elijah and Job, now it is Jesus' presence that is bewildering and overwhelming to the disciples. They simply have no category for what they're seeing, and they, they cry out in fear, assuming that Jesus is a ghost. They assume that what is approaching them on the water is an apparition of some kind, an evil spirit. I think there are two reasons for their confusion. The first is that they've never seen anything like this before. They've never seen anyone walking in water. The only explanation that they have for it is that this is a ghost. The second is that Jesus is using this moment to reveal his divine identity to them, to pass by them, to let them see just a fraction of his glory. And that, what they see in that sliver of glory is incomprehensible to them. Later in chapter 9, when this happens again, when Jesus reveals a sliver of his glory again during a scene that's called the transfiguration, the disciples will have no idea what to make of it. They'll be so overwhelmed in that scene that Mark will tell us that they didn't know what to say because they were so terrified. Out on the sea, soaking from the waves with their muscles aching, the disciples are too weak to row away but we know that they wanted to as quickly as they could. They're frightened more of Jesus than they are of the storm because this glimpse of the glory of God that they see in his presence is more than they can bear. But as the disciples quiver in their boat, crying out with fear, Jesus speaks to them. And though he wields an unimaginable power, his word to them is tender. Take heart, he says, it is I, do not be afraid. He doesn't rebuke them for not recognizing who he is. Instead, he says, take heart and do not fear. Grammatically, these two things are commands. He's telling them what to do, but practically they're words of encouragement and comfort. And they are grounded by the phrase at the center when Jesus says, it is I. In Greek, It is two words, ego, a me. Elsewhere, the same phrase is translated, I am. Two words that would have stopped the disciples in their tracks. They are the final Old Testament illusion in this scene that signals to us Jesus' identity. In Exodus 3, when God was calling Moses to go and confront Pharaoh... And to lead the Hebrew people out of slavery, Moses says, who should I say sent me? And God says, tell them that I am was the one who sent you. 
It is the name that God gives himself. The one who was and is and always will be. The one who is self-existent and above everything else that exists, who rules over humanity and over all of creation. It is the name that God uses for himself throughout the Old Testament. Anytime you see the word LORD in your Bible in all caps, that's a signal to you. That's the placeholder for God's name, considered so holy to ancient Israelites that it was not written in its full form. It is the name I am. It is the name that God uses for himself in the book of Isaiah when he says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. All of the promises of God's blessing, all of the assurances of salvation and restoration and redemption rest on the word of the one who is I am. And in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, as the disciples row with all their might against the wind, Jesus comes to them walking on the waves and he says, take heart, the one who is I am is here with you. And then he gets into the boat with them. From the throne of heaven, he steps all the way down into the storm and then into the boat with the disciples. He is God in flesh, who cares for and delivers his people by coming to see them to safety. He is the shepherd who comes from heaven to gather scattered sheep. The disciples, though, are still piecing all this together. Mark tells us that they were utterly astounded, just absolutely overwhelmed by this turn of events. They did not understand about the loaves, he said, but their hearts were hardened. What does this mean, the bit about the loaves? It refers to the day before when Jesus fed the crowd. He fed them with loaves and fish. Mark tells us they don't understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Why is he referring back to that? What does that have to do with Jesus walking on water? The answer, I think, has to do with the fact that the disciples, they understand some things about Jesus, but not everything. They know at this point that he is able to do incredible, unexplainable things that no one else can do. They have seen his power, and they are in awe of him, but they don't yet know what he wills to do with all his power and authority. They do not grasp Jesus' compassion for the sheep who are without a shepherd, and what it will constrain him to do, that he will become the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. They're hard-hearted, Mark says. They're stubborn. They're proud. They have their own ideas about someone with this kind of power ought to do. And they cannot conceive of how Jesus will actually use his divine power and authority. But he gives us a hint in the closing of the passage. The boat makes landfall at Gennesaret. Mark says that there was an enthusiastic welcome from the people there, which is putting it mildly. People recognized Jesus, and they ran from town to town, gathering every sick and needy person that they could find and bringing them to wherever Jesus was. And not only that, they implored him, they begged him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. It's a quick summary of hundreds, perhaps thousands of miracles, healing and deliverance for the helpless and the desperate. 
When Jesus looked at these crowds of needy people, the day before and here now in Gennesaret, he saw lost sheep, vulnerable and exposed. And for the crowds on both sides of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus answers their physical need with a display of power that points to his ability to answer their deeper spiritual need. And that is my prayer for us, that we would recognize that. That in reading Mark 6, we realize that we are the lost sheep that Jesus came to claim and to redeem and then deliver to safety by laying down his own life. This passage is immediately applicable to us in a couple of ways that we will briefly consider before we close. First, take heart because Jesus sees us in our struggle. The first miracle that's recorded for us in this passage is one that is often overlooked. While the disciples were rowing against the wind, Jesus was miles away on a mountaintop. It was the middle of the night. He shouldn't have been able to see them, but Mark says that he did. It's miraculous. And more than that, he knew. He knew that they were struggling, that they were making headway painfully, that they were suffering. There is no hardship, no affliction, no struggle that you endure in your life that Jesus overlooks or doesn't know about. He sees you, and he knows what you're facing when you get out of bed in the morning. And even more than that, remember that he got into the boat with the disciples. He drew close to them. He didn't need to do that. He didn't need a boat. But for their sake, he did. And for your sake, he draws close to you. Be encouraged by that. Secondly, do not fear because Jesus is for you. The one with the power to walk on water who holds the cosmos together by the word of his power, is at work for your good. Though the night is dark and the wind is howling and your muscles ache from the struggle, it cannot do more to you than what Christ has ordained, and he is for you. He ordains the wind for your good. He longs for this season of your life to be one that you look back on one day. As the disciples look back on their long night on the Sea of Galilee, that you would look back on it and rejoice that it was then that you came to see him more clearly than you ever had before. Finally, rejoice because he is patient with you. Verse 52 says that the disciples had hard hearts. It's not a compliment. It's the same phrase that's used to describe Pharaoh when he defied God and refused to let the Hebrew slaves go free. The disciples were stubborn, stiff-necked. They were hard-headed and slow to see Jesus as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. But Jesus, patiently, gently, tenderly, helped them to see and to savor the gospel promise that he was going to the cross, that his blood would be shed, that he would die, and that in dying, he would save people from their sin. He is patient with us in our doubt, in our struggles to overcome sin, and in our pathetically thin appreciation of his glory. He is kind. 
He's so kind. He helps us to see what we didn't see before. That He is God with us, worthy of our worship. And the shepherd, whose compassion for us, is our salvation. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you this morning because we have seen glory revealed in the work of your Son. We confess that we often think too little of him, that our understanding of his holiness is small and that we fail to honor him as we should. Like the disciples in the boat in Mark 6, we misunderstand. So we pray that you would open our eyes to see what this passage reveals, to get a glimpse of Jesus that helps us treasure him more, rely on him more, and worship him with joy. Help us this morning and this week to see the sheer wonder of the fact that he stepped out of glory and into the boat with us so that we could be his people, rescued by the good shepherd who lays down his life to save us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.